Welcome to the Draft Deeper Podcast. This is your host, Nathan Grubel. Joining me tonight, as always, is my producer, Kevin Black. How are we feeling tonight, man? Doing great. Another day. We have a lot to get into on this episode of the podcast, but first, I'd like to take a moment and reflect on why we didn't come out and record a show last week. Usually, we're recording these on a Monday night, just as we are right now, and we, we edit them to come out on Wednesdays. However, due to a scheduling conflict, we were originally going to record on Thursday night last week to hopefully get you all something to listen to Friday morning. Then the NBA players decided to boycott the playoff games that were supposed to happen on Wednesday, and that extended through to Saturday before we were blessed with some incredible basketball over the weekend. Out of respect to the players, to the league, and a community nationwide that's hurting right now, we decided to not put on a show, focusing on the game itself last week, and instead let the voices be heard that needed to be so proper attention could be brought to what's going on right now. And I don't want this show to be political, nor do I want to necessarily speak out of place. But what I want to say is that this media platform stands with the players and wants equality to be represented at all times. I personally... Do not support unnecessary violence of any kind, whether it be examples of law enforcement brutality or rioting that leads to unnecessary conflict. I support peaceful protesting and encourage everyone who may not agree with everything the NBA has done to speak out against racial injustice, to recognize the message and the means by how it's being done. Emotional interviews, kneeling arm in arm during the anthem, I understand there's a group of people who view some of these actions as disrespectful to the flag, but they aren't ruining the game in any way. Matter of fact, I think the entertainment value of the game overall has arguably never been higher because the players are allowed to express themselves and be seen as more than just athletes. The players are people too with real feelings, real family, real emotions to express and thoughts to expound upon. And I'm personally glad to see their words and actions are being represented now more than ever. It's in my best interest to ask the audience to continue to evaluate situations logically and not purely through emotion. And to think about your actions before you put them into motion. There's a ton of violence and hatred being spread in the world unnecessarily. And it breaks my heart to continue to see innocent people dying. I mean, Kevin, do you have anything else to say on the subject? I mean, I'm just proud of the players. They're willing to take a step back from what they love just to ensure that the people in their lives are safe at all times. So I got nothing to respect for the players. And I will always be on any side of protesting against or protesting against inequality. I agree. I agree. And it's my hope next week to dive back into the NBA playoffs and have discussions about what's been going on recently in the league especially the Jamal Murray, Donovan Mitchell back and forth that we saw another installment of last night. Man, that was something special. But I had promised previously this would be another look at the 2020 Draft Deeper NBA Draft Big Board. And before we get into 6 through 10, I want to actually make some slight revisions to the top five that was discussed in our very first episode. Now, I'm not moving different prospects into that group. I've had the same five guys for the majority of the year, and that won't change at this point. However... I do want to move James Wiseman and Denny Avdia up to spots two and three respectfully, dropping Anthony Edwards and LaMelo Ball down to four and five. And I want to share this and explain why in large part, because it's a lesson for young scouts and talent evaluators everywhere. 
I mean, I, I don't have 20 plus years experience in the industry, depending on who you ask. I could even be considered a novice of what I'm doing. However, I've learned from some of the best in the industry over the years, and I take improving my craft very seriously. And that comes back to the point of groupthink. How many scouts do you hear from or how many mocks or big boards do you look at online and see Cole Anthony first overall? What about James Wiseman being locked in on a big board that high or of Dia for that matter? Now, I'm not saying all this to expound upon why I might be right or wrong, but when you're evaluating talent, it's important to recognize what you're seeing and to try to evaluate prospects based off of the philosophies of what you believe. It's important to digest other information and take into account other viewpoints because at the end of the day, knowledge is power and education is everything. But after you've nailed down your scouting philosophy and crafted your process, stick to it. Don't let the popular opinions sway you if you truly don't agree with it. I've gone over my reservations about both Edwards and Ball. And when you look at Wiseman and Avdia, ceilings, I mean, ceilings that are not just more realistic to hit in some regards, but I can also see how they can come in, earn minutes to develop. And they have translatable skills that they can contribute with right away that flow within already established schemes of the team that they would go to. I just have a hard time having those two guys lower than the two guards who have upside in their own right, but I just don't see their games immediately translating as well. Or I don't think they have ceilings that uh, they're truly going to hit on. And the other point I'd like to make regarding evaluating talent, don't just take what a player did in college or internationally, you know, right before they got into the league is the only things to dive deep into. That crossover video that just came out about Wiseman, that's not the only time he's shown offensive skill like that in terms of handling the ball. I mean, even though he only played three games at Memphis, that's not something that Coach Hardaway would have asked him to do in the first place. That Memphis team, they already had guards in place to make plays for others and handle the ball. And Wiseman's role was only going to be defined as finishing easy buckets on offense and getting some post touches to show off some skill around the basket here and there. If you only evaluate a player off of college film, that won't tell you the whole story. I mean, going back and, and, and watching some of Wiseman in high school, I mean, and any video on some of the practice sessions at events like the McDonald's game or the Jordan brand classic. I mean, though, those are things that might give you information on how good a prospect is or what they could develop into. And it's crucial. It's as crucial to have that information and take that into account as much as some of the college film. I mean, look at Bam out of bio. If you would have evaluated his game just off what he did at Kentucky, you wouldn't even know he can shoot or handle the ball. He had some nice moments passing out of double teams and finding guys at a small sample size in college. But those other skills, unless you're going back and watching film of him in other spotlights or talking to previous coaches or, in Miami's case, bringing him in for a skills and drills workout, I mean, you're, you're not really going to know that those are parts to his game that can be built upon. I've known there's more to Wiseman's game to unlock than just finishing lobs and dunking, so being naive and grading him out with more limited upside than I know he has that that's foolish and buying into the talk that, that, that's around from others, putting too much stock into the whole groupthink philosophy. Same thing for Adia. The more you go back and watch, the more the, the, the Gallinari comp comes back to life. And that's a damn good player and outcome that I'm willing to bet on with a top three pick. So with that, let's hop into the real reason why we're doing this show today, unveiling six through 10 for our podcast audience. Now, anyone who joined the draft lottery live stream that we did on Twitch or watch it on our YouTube. You know the names I'm about to go through in their rankings, but I didn't go in depth as to why they're ranked in their respective spots. So first up is Onyeko Okongwu at number six, 
six nine center prospect and a physical mold similar to Adebayo, who we just talked about in stature. Ironically, that's also his high ceiling comp because of his fluidity and footwork around the basket, as well as his athleticism and prowess on the defensive end. What Okamu brings to the table is an immaculate face-up attack for a player his age, combined with the hustle and determination to make a play similar to the approach that Bam has on every possession. His footwork is special. Euro step to the basket, spin moves, drop step moves on a post-up. He has all those individual scoring tactics down to a science. It's very hard for an opposing big to stay in front of him, given the quickness he possesses coming out of those steps and moves. Tougher cover on, tougher cover on the basket. I mean, he's an ambidextrous finisher, can spin, turn, convert over either shoulder. His handle's still developing, but the majority of his actions come close enough to the basket to the point where it's more important for him to be able to rely on his feet than shaking someone with a dribble move anyways. But his handle's certainly reliable enough for him to not turn the ball over should he need to turn and face up his man further from the basket. So individual scoring near the rim is a strength. He's a vertical big man who can dunk off the easy lob and convert over the defense as much as through it. And he just flat out plays hard on both ends. He's a commanding presence on D, able to switch and hold his own on guards and wings. And he's strong enough in the post to hold his ground and make life tough for anyone trying to post him up and take advantage of the fact that he's not seven feet tall. He's quick. He knows how to get to his spots, particularly on the glass. Doesn't matter which end. He'll beat opposing bigs to spots to box out and bring the board down. He's an intellectual player. And bringing all of that together with his motor, his athleticism, he's an impressive center prospect. Now, where the comp can fall short as far as Bam is that at this moment, he doesn't stretch the floor well, and he's not the same kind of playmaker like Bam. You look at Adebayo, he brings the ball up the floor for Miami, and the entire offense can run through him as much as it does Jimmy Butler or, or Tyler Hero. Bam is comfortable passing off the dribble or pulling up for jumpers inside the arc like a true isolation scorer. Akung was shown flashes of a mid-range game, but that's not a consistent piece of his game yet he's not a three-point shooter doesn't have the type of creation package to score in those same ways away from the basket as bam his shooting mechanics point to him eventually becoming a threat from spots further away on the floor he's he's a heady passer out of double teams when he's pressured but the idea of him being more than what he is right now is just that it's an idea it's worth betting on his upside given the things he can do but it's also a likely outcome he ends up being a better defensive version of jj hickson Another big of the same stature who made a living in the league being a unique finisher inside. Given his size, he rebounded the hell out of the ball. He brought energy and toughness on both ends of the floor. If a Kongu doesn't develop past what he is right now, that's a likely floor for him. Is that worth taking at six? Probably not. But the flashes of brilliance in terms of ISO scoring from a face-up standpoint combined with what he can bring to the table defensively give him a base of skills to work with to earn minutes to develop other areas of his game. So past the Kongwu, next up we have Killian Hayes at number seven. Hayes' name started before the college year in the middle of the first round as a potential change of pace scoring guard from the Euro ranks. 6'4 lefty point guard from the French and German ranks. The level of improvement from Hayes, particularly over the last year, has been astounding. Is that because we've just been paying more attention to him given he's now draft eligible? Possibly. But taking a look at what makes him a special prospect, there's a tantalizing package here that goes far beyond just being able to score the basketball in a variety of ways. LaMelo Ball is the most complete passer at the guard spot in this draft class, but in terms of playing pick-and-roll basketball right out of the gate, Hayes has, a, has the largest collection of positive film examples of him playing that role and executing at a high level along with Tyrese Halliburton, who we'll touch on later in this episode as well. 
He's an instinctual passer who has a feel for not just that immediate action, but also takes into account where everyone else is on the floor. And he's more than capable of hitting corner threats in the shooting pocket for an easy triple. Cross-court passing, hitting the Roman stride, changing pace out of the pick and roll, pull up for an easy shot. He's the most complete guard to come into the league from this class to handle a professional offense from a playmaking perspective when you put together both his passing talents as well as what he can bring to the table as a scorer. Does he always see plays two to three moves ahead? Can he drop a dime out of nothing like Ball or somebody like Luka or LeBron? Not always. He can still be wired to try and score or force offense in some of those situations, but those kind of passers are generational and uncommon. And also, Hayes is still an incredibly young prospect in his own right at 19 years old. So he still has plenty of room to grow and improve past even where he is now. I mentioned his ability to change speed, stop and hit a mid-range jumper. That much is a consistent parts of, part of his game. His finishing package around the basket isn't unique, and he'll certainly have to keep improving with his right hand. He's incredibly left-hand reliant. But I would expect him to continue making those strides, given it's not like I've never seen him make any kind of play around the basket with his right hand. What I'm most concerned about his offensive game is in his shooting beyond the arc as I'm not always the biggest fan of the shots he elects to take off the dribble based on the fact that he's not even the most efficient shooter from deep in non-contested situations as it is. For all the great decisions he makes in setting up his teammates and making plays off the bounce inside the arc, settling for some of those deep jumpers is something he should look to avoid coming into the league if he wants to earn a coach's trust to develop. If he comes in, runs down the floor, jacks up threes just because they're there, he'll get pulled no questions asked. You see that all the time in the NBA. There's nothing mechanically wrong that I see in a shot. It'll be about getting stronger in his upper body and consistently working on those play types to earn the green light that he wants to have from deep. And the same goes for finishing inside, adding to his upper body strength to help him grow and convert on an even higher percentage of looks inside. Again, numbers-wise, he's in a good spot overall, particularly from the free throw line. Speaking to my point that mechanically, he's a sound shooter. Uh, almost 91% from the charity stripe. If he can find better lanes to drive and draw contact more often, that's an incredibly efficient way for him to put points on the board to balance his offensive attack and set up more of his playmaking. Defensively, he's not all the way there yet, but again, he's 19. As long as he competes, he has the size to, to hold his own defensively on the ball against other point guards. He actually averaged one and a half steals per game this previous season, so he knows how to attack his man one-on-one -on -one and definitely get the pickpocket going. Team defense is a concept. You'll hear me talk about the majority of these prospects playing off the ball within a team concept is something I see a lot more young players than previously struggle with. The guys that improve in that area tend to outperform defensive expectations, but those who don't are looked at as average or poor defenders like Andrew Wiggins, Carl Anthony Towns. More recently in the playoffs, you're seeing Michael Porter Jr. absolutely get barreled and attacked on that end. It's not something I can hold against just one player, but something to keep in mind. That will be a blanket weakness for a lot of these guys. It's something to notice moving forward when someone does execute in those situations particularly well. I favorably compare Hayes to Dragic, given his nature to generally make the right play, play at his own pace, and find ways to contribute outside of putting 30 points on the board. As long as his maturity carries over to the NBA and he continues to play within himself and emphasize what he's already good at and use those strengths to carve out a starting role, He'll be on his way to becoming an impressive prospect. And quite frankly, I may have him ranked too low if Goran Dragic is his outcome. There are shades of D'Angelo Russell there too, but, but Russell's a better shooter from deep off the bounce. 
And I don't ever see that being a main selling point of Hayes' game. I think his approach is more predicated on a scoring playmaking balance, which is actually what we thought Russell would bring uh, more to the table in the pros. He's an underrated passer in his own right, who I think is asked too often to score first instead of operating offense like how he did at Ohio State. So this is the part of the podcast where some listening out there would say it's about to go off the rails a little bit. Number eight on my big board here is 6'5 point guard RJ Hampton, someone who has free-fallen more rapidly than Cole Anthony has in recent weeks and months. Majority of mocks that I've seen with, with Intel have him going in the 20s, even though preseason he was a top 10 projected selection. The main criticism with RJ is that his entire attack is predicated around his athleticism, and that's his only advantage to making things happen on the court. That same argument would encompass the notion that he has limited skill, isn't a cerebral decision maker, and lacks understanding of how to play the point guard position. And I would argue against virtually all of those criticisms to an extent. However, there are some concerns that I agree with on these points, particularly confidence in his pull-up scoring and deep shooting. Looking back at percentages from his time in the NBL, the numbers don't look appeasing. I mean, 29.5% shooting from three, close to 68% from the line. Those aren't numbers you want to show your head decision maker as a scout. However, let's also keep in mind that he's a guard, even though he's, he's only 19 years old. He, he, he did reclassify and essentially come into a professional league out of his junior year in high school. Mechanically, I don't see hindering flaws that, that won't allow him to at least keep defenses honest with open set shots. Gets good elevation, follows through high, keeps his body square to the basket. All those little check marks you want to hit on a standstill jumper. He could stand to speed up his motion a bit, which may lead to more consistency. But I think some of that hesitation comes from being asked to make shots that, quite frankly, he didn't have to lean on in high school. He, he, here's another great example. Go back and watch film of RJ at the high school and AAU levels. That kid was a blur, both in the half court and in transition. He didn't have to rely on making jump shots to keep defenses honest and get buckets. Being able to get into the lane at will is a blessing and a curse for young players because sometimes it can take away the need to develop other perimeter skills like a consistent three-point shot. Without repetition and confidence in the shot making from outside, even guys who don't have problems with their forms can struggle mentally, just having to adjust to needing that part of their game to come through. It's an adjustment period, and again, given his age and situation, he has the time to become more comfortable even pulling up from the mid-range versus giving the ball up to someone else or trying to crash forward into the defense. Do I like talking about mental herders that players might have to adapt to? No, because I haven't talked to RJ personally, so that may not even be an issue as to why he wasn't more consistent from outside. A lot of the things I go over on these pods and in reports, they're observations based on what I think I'm seeing. There are absolutely things we sometimes can't explain in basketball, yet they're known to be true. Having Hampton this high means I'm willing to bet he can improve as a shooter past what he is now. And there are a number of examples of him making open set shots in the NBL. So I'm confident that with, uh, with, with work, his shot can translate in the NBA. And coming back to the IQ portion of the conversation, particularly passing and acting as a table setter, I don't see the same concerns as everyone else with that part of his game. Drop RJ in pick and roll situations, and he actually handled himself very well. Finding the roll man with a wall-time pocket pass for easy finishes inside. Same thing when his dance partner pops out. What I personally think he struggles with the most is when defenses switch on the action and he's left one-on-one -on -one against someone with size who can body him up and make life difficult for him should he try to go inside. He's got a great first step to burst into the lane, but if he has a matchup that can wall him off or body him up, he's not strong enough yet to finish through contact consistently. A big reason why some of his two-point percentages 
weren't as ideal as you like to see than be, you know, if he's more comfortable scoring right now. When he does get in a bind, he's proven he can hit a cross-court pass to the corner, pass his way out of trouble. But ideally, he'll have to keep adding to his frame to be able to take some of those hit the defense lays on him. Should a pull-up J not be one of his primary options to go to as a scorer? He sees plays well enough before they happen. Does he see plays well before they happen and to know when to drop off creative assist to a cutting man or a shooter running off the screen? Unless it's part of the play he knows is being run. No, he doesn't always see the little things, which is why some have questioned his ability to run an offense. Because at some point, you have to figure out where the defense is breaking down and be able to deliver the ball in those cracks. But there have been some promising dump-off reads I've seen him make, and I think some of those things will come in time. Now, what if he isn't a point guard? What if he's used off the ball more like a Dennis Schroeder type? Maybe not worth that high of a pick, but, I mean, given some of the options on the board that could end up being full-time starters, that, that that's part of gambling on a talent like Hampton. If everything hits for him, he could turn out to be what Dante Exum was supposed to be as an athletic floor general who's difficult to keep out of the lane and can get you in a variety of ways. He'll be someone who's likely given a lot of run in the G League this upcoming year and maybe even the year after. But if a team is patient enough to wait on his talent level, I think this is where he could end up being resorted on a big board um, down the road when we look back. I mentioned we would talk about Halliburton, and this is where I have him currently at nine, in part because he's a tough player for me to peg upside-wise. I know who he is today and what he can come into the league and do. 6'5 guard, technically capable of playing and guarding either the one or two. Near seven-foot wingspan, making him long enough particularly in playing passing lanes and being a disruptive defensive playmaker. Cerebral talent who sees the floor and treats the game like chess, putting the pieces around him in position to succeed. Comfortable in pick-and-roll situations, he sees movement happening around him and hits guys in shooting pockets, times his pass as well, can make all the hit-ahead reads in transition to get his guys running. He's a playmaker. Everything I just said should entice someone to take him with a high draft pick. I may admittedly have him too low, given some of the flaws I pointed out and guys above him, especially Hampton. But the thing about Hampton, he has an upside to him that is tied to being able to score the basketball, both playing off the ball and finding ways to get open as well as on the ball in isolation situations. Halliburton struggles to get around guys in the half court and set himself up for good shot attempts off the dribble. Scouts had the same questions about Luca when he was coming out, but Luca's big at 6'8, has the size and strength to hold someone on his hip so that all he needs is one step to get ahead. He can keep his man back there. Halliburton doesn't have that same luxury. Yes, he has good size and length, but he's only 175 pounds and doesn't have the same requisite strength quite yet. His shooting mechanics are bizarre to say the least. So even when he does get open off the ball for a catch and shoot looker or try to pull up off the dribble, his push shot that just goes straight up and seems to just fall through the net. How reliable is a shot without a consistent follow-through? Even some of the other weird shooters the league has seen, they've at least had a consistent follow-through that they could hold in position. Halliburton's percentages are clean, 82% from the free-throw line and 42% from three. So the numbers check out, and he'll absolutely get looks off ball movement and motion at the next level that, that are certainly open enough for him to be able to take his time and line up that push shot. If he can knock down some of those shots consistently despite the mechanical flaws that I pointed out, then that's another layer to his offensive game that makes him a threat even apart from creating an isolation. If that catch-and-shoot Jay's there, then I definitely have him too low. 
But there's something about those mechanics to where I need to see them in the NBA. I need to see him hit those same shots against better defenders who will close out on him with size and make him change shot angles and adjust. Will he be able to adjust and get those shots to fall as cleanly as he did in college? I personally have my doubt. And if he can't score, how much can he actually stay on the floor to let his other strengths shine, especially on defense? I mean, he's the best team and off-ball defender at the guard spot in the draft if we aren't putting wings who can slide down to the two in that conversation. Halliburton's feel and IQ are off the charts. He's a difficult player, in my opinion, to peg. So I'm going to leave him here, and I'll be ready to eat crow if I was wrong and he turns out to be a top-five talent in the class. And last but not least, I have Devin Vassell out of Florida State here at 10. 6-6 wing, whose role in the NBA is 3 and D. There's no way around it. He's probably not a better pure defensive prospect than Isaac Okoro or a better pure shooter than somebody like Aaron Neesmith. But his combination of being well enough at both ends puts him here for a league that is putting a premium on catch-and-shoot players as well as wings who can switch and be held accountable for multiple defensive assignments. Vassal's a tough competitor who has the length and size to bother a number of different matchups one through three. On or off the ball, he can be a nightmare. He's confident, quick-footed, puts in the effort to recover and contest even if he's beaten off the dribble. I wouldn't label him as much of a playmaker defensively as someone like Okoro, who has plenty of steel and block highlights to lean on. But for containing a particular matchup and making their job on offense that much harder, Vassal's a premium candidate for such a role out of this draft class. Shooting-wise, he's not a creator, but spotting up or catching off the move are both strengths of his, which lend credibility to his effectiveness within an NBA offense. And given his high release point on his shot with his size and length, it's difficult for a lot of guys to bother him even when they do get the chance to close out on him. As mentioned, he's not a shot creator, nor a decisive passer when he has to move the ball. Right now, his offensive role is limited, although this past year he started to show flashes of taking guys two steps off the dribble, pulling up for that clean mid-range shot to attack a closeout. If that can consistently become part of his game and he can further expand off that, then his ceiling may be higher than originally thought. But even if this is who he is, Think a better defensive version of Furka and Korkmaz. That's worth taking a gamble on this high, especially if he has the right pieces around him offensively to mask his creation weaknesses. So that pretty much wraps up the big board conversation this week. Kevin, is there anything else specific that you wanted to, to touch on going on in the NBA right now? I mean, I'm always going to talk a little bit about the Miami Heat. You know me. <laughs> well, 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 that is the, the game that's going on right now as we're recording again. We're recording on Monday night. Um, right now, they're they're deadlocked, man. 54-53, Milwaukee has the one-point lead. A, a lot of people are picking Miami to upset Milwaukee in this series. A lot more than I thought. I you, you have to be one of those people. I'd be surprised if you weren't. Yeah, it's one of those hipster picks, right? Like, I feel like everybody wants to be on the right side of the trend, and they're like, oh, Miami matches up well. Whereas I 100% agree, and I am picking Miami. I'm not picking it because it's trendy. I'm picking it because I think Jimmy Butler wants to win more than Giannis. I don't know if I'd say that, but I what is I there, will is there say... Anybody, is there anybody in the NBA who wants to win more than Jimmy Butler? I don't think so. That guy Giannis only cares about winning. pretty competitive, man. That, yeah, that man Jimmy doesn't talk to more. anybody else but his teammates. J- Jimmy Butler... At least, you know, hang, hangs out with, with D-Wade or talks to Melo every now and then. Giannis talks to nobody. He doesn't want any part of anybody else. 
So from from that aspect, I don't know if I fully agree, but what I will say is that Miami certainly has the offensive firepower to make Milwaukee's job on defense a living nightmare because they don't want to guard the three. They don't want to have to step out and guard the three. They want to protect the paint. And at the same time, they 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 welcome those long shots so that they can get those rebounds, push the ball in transition, and get easy baskets at the rim. And that's that's what Giannis is best at doing. So if Miami is canning all of their three-point shots and they're essentially making Milwaukee go to a different game plan than they want to play, I mean, that's an uncomfortable edge to Miami, and that's a big reason why a lot of people are picking them. They got the snipers. They got Hero. They got Duncan Robinson. Uh, J- Jimmy, for whatever reason, has has decided to find his, his three-point stroke here in some games in the playoffs, so especially if he's making shots with Iguodala, Crowder. I mean, they got so many weapons. And then Bam, Bam's the one defensive guy that you want on Giannis, right? I mean, he's he's I, – I wouldn't call anybody a Giannis stopper, but he's that physical presence that can wall him off and keep up with him. I mean – the the best part of for Miami right now is that you have Tyler Hero who's one for three from three pointer. You have Kendrick Nunn who's zero for two. Iguodala who's zero for two. It's not like they're actually shooting three pointers that well right now. Like Jay Crowder if and Drajikar, but those aren't the guys you want shooting well. You'd rather have Tyler Hero be knocking down three after three. Because that's what. Well, it's, er- it's early. I mean, some of those guys are young. They'll they'll get within the flow of the offense as they get a better game plan together. Figure out what exactly. Milwaukee is doing to, to to wall him off, and Miami's great at making adjustments. Eric Spolster came from the film room; he he lives in the film room. He he will absolutely go back after this first game and review everything and and do what he needs to to come out swinging in game two, even if they would lose tonight if they lose tonight. So I'm not necessarily worried about Miami not being able to make adjustments, and it's going to be a competitive series. This, as well as Boston and Toronto, that's going to be a lot more competitive than what we've seen so far. I know the Celtics came out. And, and blew the doors off of Toronto. But the Raptors, just, they just didn't look like themselves in, in that first game. I'm a little surprised because I've said all along they've been the most well-prepared team to come into the bubble here in terms of making a run in the playoffs other than the two L.A. teams out west. But J- Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, Marcus Smart, they, they are not going to go away or, or bow down to anybody else in the east. They They – they very well could come out, and 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 I said on on a podcast with Brett. I mean, they they have the highest ceiling of, of anybody else in the East to come out. So that that's going to be an interesting series to watch. I guess before we go, I I will touch on Jamal Murray and Donovan Mitchell. Shout out to both of those guards, especially Jamal Murray. The the shot making that both of them, but especially Murray, are displaying right now. It's 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 insane. And I know people are going to go back and say, well, well, this guy's not playing defense. That guy's not playing defense. Where, Where is their scheme? Why are they not trying to double Jamal? Why why is Denver in turn not trying to double Mitchell Moore? Understand that a lot of these shots that they're making, these are difficult shots. I, I, I'm talking step back, sidestep, threes from who knows where downtown that they're just canning left and right. And it is absolutely impressive to watch. It's breathtaking. I mean, any commentator that, that's been on the game, Chris Weber, last night was just in shock and awe of, of what these guys are doing offensively. And, and that Game 7 coming up tomorrow, um, if you're listening to this on, on Wednesday when we get it out, you're going to know the winner of that game. But 
I'm, I'm a little jealous in that sense because I, I really wish I was able to watch it tonight and and see that battle. But I, I got to wait one more day. Um, Kevin, and anything to say about Jamal Murray and Donovan Mitchell, the show that they've put on? I mean, it's just impressive. Two young guys. I know we had Donovan Mitchell a few years ago kind of show out in the playoffs, but to see him do it again, especially in this kind of circumstance, and Jamal Murray kind of like elevating himself as a superstar when many people didn't really view him that way before the series. But, I mean, if he picks, if he like continues what he's doing, I don't think there's going to be any argument against that, right? No, no, there won't be. And he, he does need to come out and do it in Game 7, but... Per, per, personally, again, I'm I'm not into a lot of the the, the media jargon and and the arguments that oh so so and so doesn't show up in this playoff game well then they're not a good player I I don't really believe any of that I will I will argue and I'm sure that we're gonna have a guest on at some point that's gonna argue about Paul George with me I still see him as a top ten player regardless of all of the playoff you, you know go how I go, feel go about Paul George go 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 right ahead Kevin give us your playoff P diatrobe. He is not a top 10 player by any means. He is overrated. And he's honestly just... He has a terrible attitude. Like, the Clippers should not have won that series. Don't even get me started on Morris. After how he literally, blatantly, went after Doncic multiple times. And he should never even have been in the series to hit him one more time in Game 6. The Clippers... Like, honestly, look very suspect right now. And I may have predicted them to lose. And although they didn't lose, they looked very, very vulnerable in the series. Well, I mean, the the, the whole thing with, with, quite frankly, both of the Morris brothers in these playoffs, and, and, and they, they both have a, a history of, of making things rough for their opponent and, and, and doing some Bush League stuff. I mean, that's that's all there on film. That That's well-known. At, at this point, I don't even think Doncic made much of it because, again, when, when you go into a game with those guys, I mean, you kind of know what you're going to get, right? Um, a, a, as for the stuff about Paul George, again, he's a two-way wing, elite one-on-one -on -one defender when he needs to be, can absolutely play defense in space, pickpocket, play passing lanes, get out in the break, the whole nine yards from the defensive perspective offensively even though his shot hasn't been falling he's been he's been cold from outside especially from three i'm actually a little impressed by the playmaking that he's showing racking up the assist that he is having the willingness to still go out there rebound the hell out of the ball make plays for others e even though he's not making shots he's still trying to do everything he can for his team and even being able to contribute in those areas period speaks to how good of a player he is because some guys if they don't have their shot falling they, they wouldn't be contributing much of anything and they wouldn't be playing uh, the, the amount of minutes that Paul George has been playing in some of these games. So I, I think that speaks to, to his greatness and ultimately what he brings to, to the table. I hope everything's okay with him mentally. I, I, I certainly know some of what that's like be, being in a dark place and not being able to perform to the best of your ability because you're not all there mentally and emotionally. So, so hopefully he, he's put a lot of that behind him and he's ready to come out swinging in the second half uh, of, the, of the playoffs. But personally, I still see him as a top 10 player. I'll take him on my team. Um, I, I know you love Jimmy Butler, so I'm not going to come at you with this, but there are plenty of other detractors regarding um, what Jimmy Butler can bring in a high-pressure situation given that he's not always the best um, deep shot maker. Yeah. But 
give me Jimmy Butler, give me Paul George on my team all day long. I still want those guys. They're top wings. They're great players. Um, trust me, I, I will take talent when, when it comes to the playoffs than, than some of these notions about um, Paul George or George Paul, as, as our, uh, our good media friend Skip Bayless likes to call him. Um, I, I, I will still take him on my team. Don't say our. I, uh, he's your media friend, not mine. Uh, sure, sure. You, you, sure. Uh, I go going back to what you're saying about when he wants to be a good defender, he can be. But like, have you? Can you name me one more player that has had more game-winning shots shot over them? I can't think of one. That guy's a magnet for getting scored on in game-winning situations. All right, you you, you want to point to some of those? That that's fine. I mean, the the defense that he played. Probably the, the, the more the more recent one that comes to everybody's mind is the shot that Devin Booker hit over him in these playoffs. Tell me he didn't play textbook high-quality defense on that shot. Perfect closeout, hand in the face. Booker could probably barely see where he was lifting that ball up to. And, hey. and, and the shot went in by Booker, sure. He's, he's a fantastic shot maker. He's an improviser. But you can't tell me that Paul George didn't play excellent defense on that no. possession. I'm not saying he didn't play excellent defense on that one. But when it consistently happens over and over again, you can't be called an elite defender. He's a very, very good defender. He's not an elite defender. He's unlucky, man. I, w- I wouldn't <laughs> want to walk into a casino with, with, with him and me going to the roulette table. You're probably going to lose some money if you're following what we're doing. But... I'll, I'll bet on exactly what opposite of you're doing. That, that, that's what you usually do, and, and most of the time you end up on a better end than, than me, especially um, on the poker table. So... With, with, with that being said, as always, thank you all for listening to the Draft Deeper podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe on YouTube as well as Spotify and Apple Music. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Draft Deeper. Be on the lookout for more content coming soon. I promise we're still just getting started. I hope everyone has a wonderful rest of the week. Stay safe. Keep watching the playoffs and keep enjoying the game that we all love. Thank you. Yeah.